0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will.
1: Hello, David.
0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 47 of the Common Descent Podcast. 47. Getting up there. Right? It's a big number. It's also November. So welcome, everyone, to November. The year's almost over. In this episode, we are talking about early synapsids. Cool. What does that mean? Okay, so (laughs) synapsids are a group of vertebrate animals. A very large group of vertebrate animals that today includes only one group, the mammals. Yarp. But mammals are not the only synapsids that have ever existed. No. And for the better part of a hundred million years before mammals evolved, synapsids, non mammalian synapsids, were the dominant vertebrate life on land on the planet Earth.
1: Yeah, which is a, a weird concept because we're used to mammals being in charge now, but there was a time when synapsids were also in charge, but not mammals.
0: Yep. Which is cool. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be focusing on this group that, for now, I'll use the word proto mammals. Proto. And then we'll talk a bit more about that (laughs) terminology and naming in a little bit. Really cool group of animals, really cool time period in Earth history. So it'll be a lot of fun to talk about the variety and the evolution of that sequence. Also, this has been requested a lot.
1: Yeah, this has been a popular topic, which is good, because I I feel like these animals get overlooked sometimes.
0: I agree. This subject, or subsets of this subject, in some form, this topic has been requested by Jake, Eric, Jaster, David, Nils, and Carly. (laughs) Thank you to all of them. The Synapsid Gang. The Synapsid Gang. Thanks, Synapsid Gang. Those are six of my favorite synapses. (laughs) Before we get into the episode topic, a few announcements. It's November, and as we sometimes like to remind people, every month that this podcast continues to exist is in thanks large part to our patrons, Mm -hmm. whose support helps keep this going. And if you are a patron at a certain level, we will call your name out on the podcast. This episode, we have three names to call out welcome to the patron folds to aspen alexandra and hans welcome thank you so much thanks very much if you'd like to consider being a patron head on over to patreon.com and to, look at common Sense Podcast.
1: to your local patreon
0: head over to your local patreon to your local computer <laughs> and type up type www dot <laughs> w- pa- w- com. all one word <laughs> <laughs> I <in my> guess <laughs> Oh, these are old people jokes. Yeah, oh boy. you remember back in the day. in other things, we uh, as October has been finished, we have wrapped up our speculative evolution series. Yeah, a marvelous experiment run by our friend will on the other side of this call. So much fun. It was great. if you haven't listened to that, check it out. We speculated on the evolution of some fun monsters for the month of October. Listen in, let us know if you like it, and maybe we'll do some more around this time next year.
1: You'll you'll have to really speak up if you want to stop me from doing it next year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And before we wrap up the year, we had so much fun earlier in the year answering questions from our listeners. Mm -hmm. We're going to do another Q&A. Absolutely. So keep an eye out. Around the time this episode comes out, we'll start posting links to a submission form. Where you can submit questions you want to ask us, and we'll do a, at the end of the year, we'll do q and A Q&A wrap up episode where we'll just answer a bunch of our listeners' questions. Yeah, it'll be awesome. So keep an eye out for that, and I believe I do declare that that is all of the announcements for this episode. That was that was the speediest announcements we've had in a while. It is. We don't have any big projects happening right now we're (sighs) our our project is to get sleep (laughs) well that means that it's time for the news every episode here at the common descent podcast we like to pick some recent news from science of our interest paleontology evolution things like that and now before we get into our main event for the episode we go over to the news desk with will will
1: I'm here with a bit of news, very recent bit of news, only a few days old by this recording, of the discovery of a new species of crocodile. Sounds fascinating. It sure is, especially to me. (laughs) Now, you don't mean a new, like, a new fossil species. No, a new today species. So this is not paleo, and it is not some, some discovery about the evolution of an animal as much as it is realizing that a crocodile we thought we knew is something slightly different
0: ah well there's something you don't get every day
1: yeah in fact not every day since about 85 years ago <laughs> <laughs> now the research we're looking at here is by shirley et al in Zoo Taxa, and we will be linking it to a nat geo article by douglas main And this is talking about a newly described species of slender snout crocodile, the African slender snout crocodile, that up till now was thought to be but one species is actually two. Ooh. Yeah. So the African slender snout crocodile is not new to being redefined taxonomically. It actually recently, by the early 2000s, was just put in its own genus, Mesotops. And before that had just been within crocodilus the rest of the crocodiles and they realized it was different enough to be its own genus mesotops cataphractus is the west african slender snout crocodile and through dna analysis they were able to identify it as its own genus this is a pretty standard crocodile except it does have a very slender muzzle as the name suggests they're not they're medium-sized under 10 feet typically so not not small not big And are typically going after small aquatic prey items, fish and frogs and crustaceans and stuff like that. They are located throughout uh, the western central area of Africa, pretty wide span, and are occupying uh, swampy and, and river systems. So, you know, typical crocodile stuff. This population, though, has been looked at by the researchers and... Once again, mostly due to DNA analysis, we're able to identify that the easterly portion of this population is actually a separate species. Oh. Still within Mesotops, so same genus, but a new species. This, is ne- this new species has been designated Mesotops leptor and is the central African slender snout crocodile, since it is more toward the interior of the continent. Going to look very similar- it has a few physical characteristics that set it apart that probably you wouldn't notice at a glance, but upon analysis they found that consistently the central slender snout is smoother skin, at least in appearance, whilst the western has much more prominent scales and protuberances, and also the central one lacks the crests that the western one has on the head. Interesting. So, Little slight details. The DNA, though, is what really tells the tale. So whilst looking at the DNA, it showed that these two species diverged roughly about 8 million years ago. Wow. So a ways back, and this is where it gets interesting. This is about the same time that volcanoes in their region began to rise up. And so it seems that the cause of this separation was due to the construction of these volcanoes.
0: Ah, An allopatric
1: speciation. They were physically separated from each other. Volcanoes rose up in the middle of the slender snout population, the range, and separated them. And as far as their research shows, they have not been able to interbreed between one another over the last 8 million years. And it's allowed them to diverge. Very cool. Yeah. This is significant for two big reasons other than just being awesome that we're identifying a new crocodile. But it is also the first full species identification of a new crocodile since 1935. And that's significant because the process of naming new species is not a simple one. And they went through all the steps so much so that they had to actually identify a new type specimen for the Western slender snout crocodile because the original had been destroyed during Nazi bombing of the London's Natural History Museum, most likely.
0: Wow, so they had so the type specimen of course is the mm-hmm. quintessential example of yes. a species. The one that so the species
1: they, is named off of and the description is made off of.
0: Yeah. So they not only had to designate a holotype mm-hmm. for the new species, but in order to differentiate it they had to come up with a new one, mm-hmm. which I think is a le- a neotype. It, yeah, I, b- I believe be.
1: so. I believe so. Yeah.
0: And that's cool.
1: They even said that the the type specimen for Uh, The central slender snout, it was actually a juvenile, which gave them an extra layer of complications to make sure that their characteristics they were using are valid for the species as a whole. Right. Uh, So a lot of time and effort put into uh, fully identifying and going through the process of naming. Now, this is not to say that new crocodile species have not been identified since 1935, but none of them have gone through this official formal naming process. Interesting. The dwarf crocodile has been identified to be most likely either multiple, probably up to three subspecies or separate species. And the Nile crocodile has been realized to be separate from a the Western African crocodile or desert crocodile. So like we've identified that there are multiple species within populations before, but the formal naming process and identifying of type specimens has not happened for those yet, which is why That'd you'll often see numbers for crocodiles being like, between 23 and 26 crocodilians
0: right right because some of these are still in limbo and this is fun because we talked in our last episode episode 46 about cryptozoology yes about discovery of new large species Mm Mm-hmm. and this is often how it happens you know the last century or so if we discover a new species of large animal it tends to be a species that was in plain sight Yes. And we just didn't recognize.
1: We just didn't notice that it was actually different because it looked similar enough at a glance. The thing that makes this really interesting as well is it actually adjusted the conservation status of the Western slender snout, which... Oh, I'm sure. The entire population had been believed to be Western slender snout crocodile. Now with this new identification, that actually cuts their population down to an estimated 500 wild individuals Ooh. and puts them at the critically endangered level. Ooh. So we identified that a portion of this population was a new species. We identified a new type specimen for the Western and had realized that it is a much greater danger of extinction than we had previously thought. So this, is, this made a bunch of shifts with a, a seemingly simple discovery that took a lot of work and research.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it means there's more diversity in danger than mm-hmm. we realized. It's Absolutely. not just a portion of a species, it's a whole species that is in trouble. Yes. Very interesting stuff.
1: It's exciting.
0: Well, my first bit of news is about fossils. We're talking dinosaurs because it hardly an episode goes by without some dinosaur talk that yeah, people like those. This is a bit of research that discovers the Wrong Kind of Teeth in a Dinosaur's Mouth. Uh, it's wearing the wrong dentures. It, well, yeah, it's it's going to be weird. <laughs> this is research that has not been published, but was presented by Mark Goodwin et al. at SVP, which happened just recently in Woo. mid to late October. The meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. If you want to hear more about that, listen to episode 17 for last year's meeting. <gasps> and we'll link to an article in National Geographic by John Pickrell... Goodwin et al. presented on a new juvenile skull of Pachycephalosaurus. Cool. Pachycephalosaurus, very famous dinosaur, the one with the dome on its head and all the knobby bumps and stuff around the back. Classically depicted headbutting each other, though arguably not having maybe done that. (laughs) That's the conversation for another time. Pachycephalosaurus is also famous because its juvenile skulls have been reinterpreted as the years have gone by. As potentially being different species, and now I think uh, largely agreed, at least in some circles, to not be different species Mm -hmm. and just be juveniles of Pachycephalosaurus. This skull has the potential to help us sort that out. This is a Dracorex ontogymorph, which is a great (laughs) word,
1: right? I like
0: that. So, that is to say, this is the version of juvenile Pachycephalosaurus that has been identified elsewhere as dracorex as the genus dracorex from the hell creek formation late cretaceous it is the most complete set of pachycephalosaurus teeth and jaws yet discovered significant including the first known predentary which is a bone at the front of the the jaw in certain dinosaurs like triceratops and such i believe have them as well So, on the one hand, this is cool because it helps us sort out more of the ontogeny, episode 33, of these dinosaurs, which is helpful for all sorts of reasons, how they grew up as the time went on, how they grew up as as they got older, but also because of what they found in the front of the mouth. (laughs) The teeth in the back of Pachycephalosaurus's mouth are these broad, leaf-shaped teeth that are very classic herbivore teeth slicing and you know mashing up plant material which has always been the image of pachycephalosaurus up till now absolutely and it falls right there within the ornithischians next Mm -hmm. to the ceratopsians right these big herbivorous clade of dinosaurs well when they looked at the front of the jaw in the front of the dentary bone they found Mm. triangular blade-like teeth yeah Now, the article described them as triangular, blade-like, sharp teeth. But the abstract in the SVP book describes them in a way that, for me, is much more visceral. (laughs) They are laterally compressed, which is to say side-to-side compressed, like a shark's tooth is front-to-back compressed, and serrated. Ooh... They're serrated teeth. <laughs> yeah. If you don't recognize that term, grab a steak knife mm-hmm. out of the kitchen drawer and look closely at the edge. The edge of a steak knife is not smooth. It's got all those little denticles on it, all it those saw-toothed. bumps. It is sawtoothed. Uh, th- serrated teeth, <clears throat> shark teeth are serrated. Yarp. Saber toothed cat canines are serrated, I believe. Yarp. Theropod dinosaur teeth are serrated modern-day monitor lizards and apparently pachycephalosaurus had serrated teeth in the front of its mouth that's
1: fantastic
0: so similar to theropod dinosaur teeth right meat-eating dinosaur teeth that a number of paleontologists are quoted in this article as saying if you just showed me one of those teeth i would probably have identified it as a theropod that's fantastic this is ridiculous what was Pachycephalosaurus doing with these theropod teeth in the front of its mouth?
1: <laughs> it's murdering plants.
0: I guess. Now, not only does it have these serrated blade teeth in the front of its mouth, it still had a beak. So it had a horny beak with serrated teeth inside of it. That Now that's where it gets weird. What a weird dinosaur. Now, lots is uncertain on the one hand. Is this just a juvenile feature? If we find skulls of adult, more complete skulls of adult Pachycephalosaurus, will we find these teeth still in there or is this something they grew out of? What exactly are they doing with these teeth is a little bit uncertain. We don't know what their diet was. Maybe they were opportunistic. Maybe they were eating small animals to supplement their plant diet because those back teeth are still very much herbivorous functioning teeth. Maybe they were eating different things at different times of the year. All sorts of things can be investigated. The researchers mentioned doing isotope studies or microware studies on the teeth to sort of see what they might have been using them for. So there's a lot more to be learned here. But my goodness, what a cool find. That's
1: awesome. It's fairly normal to see different kinds of dentation in mammals. Like That's one of the things that defines much of the mammal group is that we have different teeth in different part of the mouth to do different jobs. We have mm-hmm. we have teeth up front for nipping and cutting. We have canines for grabbing onto food, and we have molars in the back for grinding up food. We don't see yeah. that in a lot of other groups. It's cool when dinosaurs show it, because there are some that will show this feature, and that's a yeah. really cool thing to, sh- to see show up there, because then it, it immediately brings to mind that they probably also had extremely complex feeding and diets, just like mammals can. Is cool.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. There's also a note in the article that quotes other paleontologists pointing out that there are a lot of fossil sites where we have identified isolated <laughs> theropod teeth. <laughs> isolated, meaning they're by themselves. They're not with another, you know, they're not with the skull. It's just a tooth you found. And now you got some people going. Well, maybe those aren't all theropod teeth. <laughs> oh, son <of>. up! <laughs> it's just, I get a picture of someone
1: looking at this skull and then looking at the drawer of isolated theropod teeth and going, huh. Uh,
0: call the undergraduates. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you'll be looking at this tooth and you'll be looking at this tooth. You'll be looking at this tooth. Yeah, that's that's something that can really rewrite things when you suddenly realize... A, an animal had a feature that previously had not preserved
0: so i'm um, I'm excited to hear more from this I, i'd love that
1: if they they were nipping or, or or eating little bits of meat to supplement especially since they're up front so it, it like going after small things or picking off carrion be really yeah. cool awesome well my next news piece is uh written up in uh, nat geo <laughs> <laughs>
0: we, we recently, we're really into National Geo. Right? We really
1: are. I had not, I had not paid attention when you said which news you were doing that you're, you also had a nat geo. Uh, this is the oldest footprint trackway, fossilized trackway yet discovered in the Grand Canyon huh. from a little, little quadruped walking in a really weird way.
0: I like this already.
1: It's, it's really interesting. Now, this is research also presented at SVP recently, so it is not yet published out there, but it was by Stephen Rowland and Mario Caputo, and this is a trackway that was actually discovered basically by accident. In 2016, just a couple years ago, a group of paleontology students was being led by uh, one of the friends of the researchers, and... While they were hiking through the canyon, they came across an area where there had been a rock fall. A portion of the wall had tumbled. And one of the boulders had split as it fell or landed, and it split along a seam, which is what often happens when you see, like, shale fossil sites, and they're splitting open those slabs to reveal fossils in between the layers of rock. Right. This happened here, but naturally, it just split along one of those layer seams and revealed a trackway of footprints counting 28 individual prints that formed a little pathway about a yard long.
0: Hmm. What a cool way to find a fossil. Yeah!
1: Uh, The paleontologists contacted the park officials as well as Roland to let them both know what had been found. They came and looked at it and then came back to do some research and are now still researching it to try to piece together the full picture but their initial findings already show some cool stuff. It is an old trackway, about 310 million years old. So this is from the Carboniferous period. And this is a time when the earliest ancestors of reptiles and amphibians were starting to show up. And this is a medium, would have been a medium-ish to smallish-sized animal. Quadrupeds so four-legged and... Shows similar proportions potentially to be early ancestor of reptiles or something similar or close to that, but that's based off of other trackways with similar sizes and, and characteristics. So that, that, that one, they're still not sure who made the trackway, which we've talked about before. You can't actually identify specifically what species left mm-hmm. the footprints, but they're not sure who it is in general. So that's still going to be looked into. The thing that does stand out about this is it was made in sand, and these trackways are walking in the sand in a really weird way. They aren't walking in a straight line. They are walking at an angle. So each of the footprints hmm. is actually at a 40 degrees away from the actual path that the animal was following. So it was it was walking on a diagonal.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: This is super weird. They actually, the article has a really great picture of them reconstructing the steps that they would have to take to form this. And basically <laughs> it would take its front right and back left foot and move them forward and to the right and then follow with the other two feet and yeah. then bring those other those first two feet over to the right and forward again and doing this little sidestep shimmy as it walked. Now there are multiple reasons it could have been walking this way, but they're not sure which one it is. They'll have to take a more detailed look at the fossil to try to figure out which one of these reasons it might be. The first ideas they had was that it could have been walking into a wind, a strong headwind, and been, <laughs> been leaning
0: into it kind of thing that i that did not occur to me, and I think that's awesome
1: right i I did not think of that. The other one is the one I thought of is that it was walking on a slope of a dune. And this was helping it avoid slipping. So it, it's like when you walk oh, down a hill yeah. at a angle instead of walking straight down it so that you're not going head first at a f- steep angle. It yeah. was it was taking a little sidewalk down a hill so that it did not slide down a dune. Because this would have been a very deserty environment it was in, so it might have slipped in that sand. Kind of like a oh, sidewinder is what it made me think of. Yeah, um, yeah. Which one that is, they will have to look in they will not know for sure. The next step that they're hoping to follow this research up with or continue this research with more accurately is to look at the exposure characteristics of the sandstone. And if it's preserved well enough, it might actually be able to tell them at what position on the dunes these footprints were left. If it was at the top or edge or at the trench in between dunes. Because then it will tell them if, you know, if it's at the bottom of the dunes in between two, it's not slipping around. So it must be doing something else. Yeah. So that's their next step to hopefully figuring out why the shimmying animal was shimmying.
0: That's super cool. Right? I, I like that trace fossils, ichno fossils, can preserve just completely out of nowhere things. Yes. Like. And trackways are so weird because, you know, we, we always we have this picture in our head of you step in the ground, you leave a footprint. But how often do animals walk normally? Yeah. Like, think about all the various reasons you take a weird step or you walk in a strange way throughout the day where you stumble over something or you just happen to walk weird for some reason.
1: But if you just tracked your footprints, how often would people watch your footprints go in a direction, stop, and then turn around and go back the way you came <laughs> to, because you forgot oh, yeah. something? Or, I mean, like, there'd or be tons of times. you
0: around something. Like, mm-hmm. your footprints throughout the day would look super weird. So when we get Board walking, Boardwalking, where
1: you're <laughs> you're walking on patterns in the floor, or on voiding tracks. Yeah.
0: yeah. So it's just fascinating to get those, these little videos trackway is a little video yeah a little gif of of this this moment in this animal's life which is just super weird and cool
1: that's always the cool thing about trackway fossils is the the actual remains and they the researchers said as much the, the actual remains tell you a lot about the animal this is actually captured a moment in the life of whatever animal this was and that's something you you don't get from the bones typically so that's really cool
0: Now, my next bit of news is going to go even further back in time. We must go deeper. We must go deeper to the middle to early Paleozoic. Will, Mm -hmm. if I were to ask you, what oceanic habitat do you think is the best hotspot for diversification? What sort of marine ecosystem would you think is where the most evolution is happening at any given time? If I was a betting person, reefs would be high up. Reefs seems like the obvious answer. Absolutely, that would be my guess too. Yeah, and indeed, today we know reefs are super important for diversity fish and invertebrates. Like reefs are the rainforests of the, the
1: rainforests oceans. of the seas. Absolutely,
0: we know from fossil studies that invertebrates often diversify in reef zones. So that's where you see new body types and things showing up in the past, and it kind of has been assumed, like Will and I are assuming, that that is also true for vertebrates. Yeah. This next bit of news is a study that investigates that claim and finds otherwise. (gasps) Scandalous. This is a bit of research by Lauren Salon et al. in Science, and we'll be linking to a press release in Penn Today, which is put out by the University of Pennsylvania, which is where Dr. Salon is. Not an agio. Not an agio. <laughs> Not agio. Salon and colleagues took records of approximately 2,700 early vertebrate taxa. And when we're talking early vertebrates, we mean fish. All sorts of different fish. Sharks, bony fish, jawless fish from approximately 480 to 360 million years ago throughout the early to middle Paleozoic and created a model to try to track where the different groups of fish, where the different major clades were originating. Cool. What habitats did the base of each clade, the first members of each new major branch, live? That's really cool. Yeah, they'd say, you know, where did the earliest sharks live? Where did yeah. the earliest placoderms and so on and so on? L- literally, where did they get their start? Yes. And what they found very consistently in almost every big branch of this, of the early vertebrate family tree come on, reefs. Come on, reefs. <sighs> not reefs. Was well, not reefs. They originated in near shore environments, shallow tidal areas like lagoons. Oh. This is where the diversification was happening. This is where you would see new species, new body types showing up, and they would spread out from there. Interesting. So they would diversify in these nearshore environments, new body plans would show up, and those would go out. And in fact, they found some trends in what kinds of body forms went to other places. Ooh, that's cool. That when when they diversified into robust forms, right, bigger beefier fish, those stayed near shore or moved closer in inshore, and the more gracile, the, the more slender forms moved into deeper waters.
1: Huh, neat
0: that these lagoon tidal areas are the centers of diversification consistently through early vertebrate clades.
1: That is really really fascinating uh, my my second guess on diversification would have been shallow seas since those are so so such a boon for diversification and and species you know right help i would not have guessed lagoons specifically for yeah. shallow areas necessarily that's really that's really cool
0: and this raises the question of why that is and We don't know. (laughs) It also raises the question of whether or not this is still true. Yeah. Are nearshore environments still important centers of diversification?
1: It's going to be kind of a bummer if the answer is yes, because that's that's where we like to hang out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it does potentially answer another question, and that is, why do we have so few fossils at the base of different fish clades? And it may very well be that these tidal less stable areas are less good for fossilization yeah that if you die in that area the waves are moving the bones around destroying them they're not getting buried as well and so it's possible that this explains why the fossil record tells us so little about these origins of these clades that's
1: very very cool those little discoveries and realizations that can open up really big realizations are always very interesting like just shifting where we realized their origin was from not to say that this was like a simplistic discovery but just that shift of not reefs but lagoons could lead to many 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 more answers about the evolution and fossil history our our knowledge why it is the way it is that's I, i like those side effect discoveries that's very cool
0: yeah it could also potentially tell us where to look
1: and it, if, if we find out that this remains consistent to today, it's also going to affect conservation-minded stuff. The same reason we are so protective of wetlands, because in terrestrial habitats, wetlands are critical for species, species diversity. If we realize lagoons are that way, we might be able to start to enforce more protection of those areas. Absolutely.
0: Cool. Yep. All right, well, that's the news for this episode, which means it is time to get into our discussion of the early synapsids. Oh, boy. So during the Carboniferous period, around that time that Will's... Grand Canyon trackways came from. Yeah. There was the rise of a group of vertebrate animals called the amniotes, an important group. Amniotes are famous for laying amniotic eggs, which are eggs that have all the ingredients within them that you need to be able to survive outside of water.
1: You t- you take the water with you now.
0: Yes, this kicked off that major transition from being amphibians tied to the water to being able to go inland mm-hmm. and in the then forming continent of Pangaea, there was a lot of inland to explore <laughs> this is m- more than there's been in quite a while yes <laughs> the amniotes very quickly split into two major groups on the one hand you had the sauropsids yeah. the sauropsids are more or less equivalent to the word reptile. Yeah. sauropsids would eventually give rise to lizards and snakes, turtles, crocodilians, pterosaurs, dinosaurs, plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs. All those delightful scaly things are on the sauropsid branch of the amniode family tree. The other side were the synapsids. Synapsids are united mainly... By having a feature in the skull, a lateral temporal fenestra by itself in the back of the skull. It's a hole. It's a hole. It is <laughs> a hole where a bunch of bones meet and form this opening in the side of the skull. If you think of, a, you know, your classic T-Rex skull, it's it's full of holes. Yes. <laughs> it's so old. Those holes are part of the skull architecture. Yes. Synapsids have one on each side behind the eyes as opposed to diapsid reptiles which have two behind the eyes anapsid animals which have no holes this is the foundational architecture of the synapsid skull
1: yeah this is a big big part of sorting out amniotes and stands true throughout most of the members in those groups indeed it is
0: Now, as we mentioned earlier, synapsids would eventually give rise to mammals. Us. Us, including ourselves. But for a very long time, there was a major diversity of synapsid animals well before mammals showed up. And now we get into a little bit of words. (laughs) This episode was hard to name. (laughs) I believe it will be called Early Synapsids, parentheses, Proto-Mammals. Proto-mammals is a handy term, kind of, for basically all of the synapsids up to mammals. In the same way that non-avian dinosaurs is all of the dinosaurs up to birds, right? We're leaving out birds because birds makes us think something different. Non-avian dinosaurs is all the stuff before that. Yeah. Proto-mammals is kind of works there where it's everything that's a synapsid, it's Non-mammalian synapsids. Now, if we were recording this episode, say, 10 or 15 years ago, naming this episode would have been very easy. We would have called it mammal-like reptiles.
1: Very popular term for quite a while.
0: Yeah, that's basically what everything up to mammals, non-mammalian synapsids, for a long time were referred to as mammal-like reptiles. But we've kind of stopped using that term because like i said before reptiles is kind of confined to the other side of the amniote tree
1: yeah it's it's a misleading name
0: yeah from a time where reptile was considered to basically characterize everything amniote that wasn't bird or mammal
1: yep do, do you got scales and you live on land well reptile
0: well there you go <laughs> and that's and in fact a lot of uh, a number of the requests for this episode were for the reptile-mammal transition. Yeah. Because that was very much sort of how it was framed for a long time, that mammals evolved from reptiles, which isn't really quite true. Yes. So in this episode, we will be working our way from the base of the synapsids, more or less up to mammals. And along the way, even though we are starting with all synapsids having that lateral temporal fenestra we will also see the gradual development of very mammalian traits. Mm-hmm. Mammals, for example, as you mentioned uh, when we were discussing the news, are famous for having differentiated teeth compared to, you know, lizards and crocs and snakes, which are mostly very samey teeth.
1: Yeah, or, ju- or just variations on a theme at most. Right.
0: Mammals have a secondary palate in the, the mouth, which is part of an advanced breathing system a respiratory system that mammals have that's the roof of your mouth if you run your tongue up yes it separates Uh, your nose cavity from your mouth cavity yes so you can
1: breathe while you eat
0: exactly (laughs) and that's part of that respiratory system which also contributes to endothermy quote warm-bloodedness that mammals are famous for mammals stand with their legs underneath their bodies as opposed to sprawling like most reptiles and amphibians do, mammals have a very unique lower jaw structure. Yes, we and do. And we've talked about this in other episodes that mo, you know, your fish, your lizards, or your your fish, your reptiles, your amphibians tend to have many bones in the lower jaw, whereas mammals only have one bone on each side of the lower jaw, the dentary, the mammal jaw joint is where the dentary bone in the lower jaw meets the squamosal bone in the top of the skull, as opposed to what you see in reptiles, which is a bone in the lower jaw called the articular, meeting a bone in the top of the jaw called the quadrate. Yes. Different joint. And what happened to the articular and the quadrate, I hear you ask? Well, you use them to listen to our podcast.
1: That's how he heard you ask.
0: That's how I... Heard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, they became the malleus and the incus, which are the uh, one of the hammer or anvil. I never remember which one Boy, is which. I'm terrible. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I'm bad at that. <laughs> inner ear bones. Mammals have three inner ear bones, which is very unique to mammals. All of these traits were absent way in the beginning. We are not at mammals yet. We begin our... Bo- but we will see them gradually appear across the synapsid family tree. So let's start, shall we? We begin our journey. In the beginning. In the late Carboniferous. At the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. <laughs> the earliest synapsids in the fossil record. The earliest animals with that synapsid skull show up at the, toward the very end of the Carboniferous. Just before about 300 million years ago. In fossils from Nova Scotia up in northern north america there are a few species that have been identified as very early synapsids they include very famously a small animal called archaeothyrus cool name archaeothyrus is cool because if you looked at it from the outside you would think it was a weird lizard yeah it's got that very reptile shape that classic lizard salamander body shape yes right short sprawling legs, limbs long tail. short legs long tail absolutely in fact it, it is from the same fossil locality as some of the earliest reptiles yep which also had that same body shape because this is before the amniote branches had really diverged from each other very much
1: as we said many times when talking about the earliest members of a group they're going to look a lot alike until differences have
0: set in over time indeed the only two major differences you might notice, one, if you looked inside the head, you'll notice that lateral temporal fenestra that separates the synapsids, and you might also notice that it had teeth in the front of its mouth that were bigger than the rest of the teeth. Bucktoothed. Canines. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it had kind of what we would call canina Teeth toward the front, kind of on the sides... That would have been functioning similarly to your canines. Canines being the big teeth in your mouth, in your dog and cat, and so on.
1: That's, I'm so glad that we that was one of the features we started with.
0: <laughs> yes, it is the beginnings of what's called heterodonty, different types of teeth. Uh, there's another. There are there are a few of these early synapsids. There's another one called Echinurpaton, which is cool because it may have had a sail on its back. Oh yeah. The neural spines of the vertebrae being a little bit longer to give it sort of a hump or spine-backed look to it. Neat. But aside from, you know, a handful of these differences, what we're looking at is a bunch of early synapses in the late Carboniferous, very lizard-like, probably all insectivores, eating bugs, maybe eating smaller animals, you know, small vertebrates and such. They probably, you know, these, these would have definitely laid eggs. Some of them had scutes. Many of them may have had scales of some kind. This is the base of the synapsid family tree.
1: Cool. We got, we got some uh, very toothy, lizardy looking creatures.
0: Yes. Fun note about eggs. We don't know much about the, the eggs of these animals because they were, like most reptile eggs today, soft and leathery.
1: Mm-hmm. I was about to, about to ask.
0: So they don't fossilize. Yep. So to my knowledge, we do not have any amniote eggs in, I think, the Paleozoic? Wow, yeah. At least through a big chunk of it. Like, it. It the whole early segment of amniotic eggs is just not there. Because bird eggs are weird. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, for anyone who does not know the distinction, the hard
1: eggshell that you're so used to with your morning breakfasts, if you eat eggs, is a archosaurian trait specifically on the dinosaur side of things yes crocs and snakes and lizards and most turtles and all of the, they have more definitely a shell and it can still be kind of rigid but it's not that hard calcified shell it's more floppy leather you can like feel a baby snake moving around inside its egg if you were to hold it yeah yeah which is awesome
0: and it's the same kind of eggs that monotremes lay yeah which is really interesting Platypuses and echidnas, the egg-laying mammals. Soft shells. Indeed. Now, in the late Carboniferous, the synapses were but beginning, but the Carboniferous gives way to the Permian period, which we discussed in episode 45 quite a bit. And in the Permian, there was all this landmass, ripe to be dominated by a group of terrestrial vertebrates. Land, land everywhere, and no one living in it. Until now. And the group that does it is a major swath of synapsids that are called the pelicosaurs. Now, pelicosaurs, uh, let's talk taxonomy again for a second. Pelicosaurs isn't a great scientific term.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: we talked in episode 10 about sort of how we try to pick our scientific clade names, right? Groups of life. Pelicosaurs is one of those words, also like non avian dinosaurs, like the proto-mammals. That mostly is all the animals that evolved between this point and this point in the tree. Yeah. It's not a good monophyletic term. It's kind of a catch-all. Yes. In this case, it's a catch-all for most of the synapsids that were successful from the late Carboniferous through the early Permian. In fact, they by far dominated the early Permian. Cool. Here are a few of the groups that you would have seen if you had traveled back. Some of them looked a lot like the very earliest forms. There is a family called the Eothyrididae, members like Eothyrus and Edeliops, which were small insectivores. Like those earlier ones, small, lizard-like, with fangs, <laughs> right? Those big canine teeth. saber-tooth lizards. Sabretooth lizards, yeah, basically some however got very large in fact some of the first terrestrial animals to ever get really big belonged to a group of pelicosaur's called the caseids. these were large terrestrial herbivores uh some of them were ridiculous sized <laughs> right some of them were a meter long 2 meters long decent right right respectable yeah, yeah. sized animals Absolutely. like you you'd right. need Six a big, feet or so
1: you need a big backyard to have one of these
0: right others got quite a bit bigger than that three meters four five maybe wow. <laughs> these were very large some estimated at in the realm of three or four hundred pounds Wow one of the most famous is an animal called cotylorhynchus famous from fossil sites in the southern US. Casids looked really weird.
1: <laughs>
0: Notably, they had these big bodies, right? Picture a really tubby lizard that's, in some cases, like Cotylorhynchus, you know, four or five, six feet tall walking around on the ground with these tiny little heads Yeah, yeah. slapped onto the front of it.
1: <laughs> it's, they spent all their points in the torso and, yep. and didn't have any left over for the skull.
0: So they're kind of when you see them reconstructed, they're kind of look like glyptodonts, the big armored mammals from the Ice Age. Uh, But without the armor and the heads aren't low to the ground, they're higher up. Yeah. And they're just super weird. They had big noses, heavy jaws. These were herbivores. These were large terrestrial herbivores. This was the first version of what would later be taken over by things like hadrosaur dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. cows and and horses and things like that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a tale as old as amniotes. Big lumbering animals are good for being herbivores. They sure are.
0: And as part of that herbivory perhaps, the caseids did not have those canines. Yeah. They reverted, they said, no need for that.
1: Yeah, that's a waste.
0: Some of these are thought to have possibly been aquatic forms. Cool. Some are thought to have possibly been diggers. So already in this early the early days of Synapsids. We have a variety of ecological roles just within the big herbivores. Outside of the big herbivores, there is another group called the Varanopids. These are cool because their name, uh, they are named in part because of their similarity to Varanids, which are monitor lizards.
1: Good group to be similar to.
0: It sure is. Now, of course, they're not related to monitor lizards, but their body shape, these were Small-ish, maybe up to several feet long, carnivorous or insectivorous, animals with long legs, lightweight skeleton, they would have looked like monitor lizards, sprawling limbs. Yeah,
1: It's, it's a good design if you are going after other moving animals.
0: Yes, it is. Indeed, this was a very good design because the Varanopids, like Varanops and its colleagues, were very successful these are very widespread at this time period cool another of the popular groups are the ophiacodonts also had lots of lizard-like members most of these big families the earliest members are very lizard-like and small insectivores
1: it's funny because because the popular term used to be mammal-like reptiles really it's more like reptile-like early mammals (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> reptile-like proto mammals. <laughs> Just get longer and longer. But some of them got quite different. Ophiacodon, the genus that gives its name to the group, is this again? Picture a tubby lizard, but with they had these big heads supported by these massive shoulder muscles.
1: Bulldog lizards.
0: Yeah, well, they look like lizards with frog heads. Yeah, yes, they Just do. Kind of big mouths, big heads. Those were almost certainly carnivorous, many of them. Uh, there's some evidence that some of them might have been piscivorous, fish eaters. Cool. There's even some evidence for bone structure that is similar to what you typically see in semi-aquatic animals. Oh, all right. So some of these may have been swimmers as well. So again, we've got this diversity of groups. They
1: they almost make me think of like a, a Tasmanian devil where it's just this big head on this not as big body.
0: Yeah. That, that's actually very similar. I'm looking at Ophiacodon right now because mm-hmm. I put a picture in my notes so that I could describe it. That's not unlike what it looks like. Yeah. Just, a big I, Tasmanian devil kind of thing.
1: <laughs> scrappy little, little biters.
0: <laughs> now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, I've never heard of these pelicosaurs. What a strange variety of animals. Well, you've heard of a few, I'm sure. Once or twice at least. The other two major groups of the pelicosaurs are both very large, and some very famous. The Edaphosauridae were among the largest early terrestrial herbivores. Very abundant. These also got one meter up to three or four meters long, so we're talking 10 to 15 feet long. Significant. The most famous of them is an animal called Edaphosaurus. Big animal, right? 10, 12, 15 feet long, lizard-like body, small head, Big dorsal sail. Yeah. The neural spine sticking off the vertebrae went feet off of its back and made this huge sail. A lot of the Adaphosaurus actually had this. Lupiosaurus uh, is another big one that had a very similar size, similar appearance, these are among the first tetrapods known to have had dorsal sails.
1: They were the trendsetters.
0: Yeah, they did. <laughs> this, this shows up again and again later on. We talked about spinosaurs in episode 42. These were some of the ones that started it off. The Exactly what they were using the sail for has been up for lots of discussion. Yeah. The classic answer is thermoregulation.
1: That's, it was in every book I had as a kid.
0: Yep, that they're absorbing heat or releasing heat to to make sure that they can maintain a certain temperature. It could also be display. It could be sexual display. It could be a number of things. These are herbivores, the adaphosaurs, with big dorsal sails. And then the other, the final big group of the pelicosaurs are the sphenacodonts, which were carnivores with big dorsal sails.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: you've, you've probably heard at least one of the members. Oh, you, you sure have. <laughs> S- stick around. These are among the dominant carnivores. So the sphenacodonts are the, are the biggest carnivores around. Some of them also got three meters, four meters long. Sphenacodon itself was a 10-foot-long predator. And these, instead of the small heads that you see on the katylarinkus and the other casids and the Adaphosaurus, these had these big... Big, long, narrow skulls. So think, you know, T-Rex, right? Very good for predation. Great for biting. Strong bites with a narrow profile for grabbing and cutting into your meat. Yep. The teeth up front of the Sphenacodonts were typically big dagger-like teeth, caninoform teeth, and smaller teeth in the back. We're seeing Heterodonti, differentiated teeth for different roles. In fact... The different sizes of the teeth are what gave rise to the scientific name, two-sized teeth, (laughs) Dimetrodon.
1: Dimetrodon.
0: Dimetrodon, by far the most famous of the Pelicosaurs, probably the most famous non-mammalian synapsid, period.
1: So famous that it it pops up along cartoon
0: dinosaurs everywhere. It is probably the most famous non-dinosaur dinosaur. dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) If you buy... Kits of toys, right? Those dinosaur toys. It's in every. They always have Dimetrodon. (laughs) It's the thing with a T Rex head and a big sail on its back. That's Dimetrodon. Shows up in Land Before Time and everything. It sure does. Not a dinosaur, never met a dinosaur. But long before the dinosaurs took over, Dimetrodon was an apex predator. King on the block. Early Permian Pangea, that was the, the predator to be, Dimetrodon. So you had big sphenacodonted carnivores preying on big edaphosaurid herbivores and perhaps the big casid herbivores living on land and in water. This was the picture of the first big terrestrial ecosystems.
1: I always found this dynamic or this time interesting because you have both some of the dominant large herbivores and the major large carnivores using a not identical. There's definitely differences, but very similar body design. Oh yeah, which is really interesting because you don't see that in a lot of other groups throughout Earth's history. No, typically predators are are a very you know it's you don't see giant grazing cats. Yeah, you know, right. It's you don't see anything, and the herbivores. I mean, they have the same jointed legs, but they don't have at all the same body. Or even bones. They don't even have the same number of bones in their limbs <laughs> anymore. So, like, this is really interesting. Because then it, it really brings to my mind that question of, what was that sail doing? Because it was serving both of them, predator and prey, which
0: is cool. Indeed. And that gets into the last thing I want to mention about the pelicosaurs. And that is the question of their physiology. Yes. A lot of the things that define mammalia are what what I have in my notes Listed as soft stuff. Yeah, squishy. Things that don't fossilize. Predominant among those is warm-bloodedness, right? Warm-bloodedness is a combination of maintaining a high temperature, stable body temperature, high metabolism. We don't know when that started. Yeah,
1: because we identified mammal traits with living mammals, not fossils.
0: Yes. There has been some discussion about whether or not Endothermy and, and related traits had shown up in the pelicosaurs. Classic arguments against this include the fact that they have a sprawling gait, yep. which is a very lizard ectothermy thing to have, evidence that they grew slowly, that their bones had low vascularization, which is something you tend to see in ectotherms, less space set aside for, for blood transport and things like that. Their fossils tend to be limited to the equatorial regions, which is something you see in big ectotherms. Cold-blooded animals mm-hmm. need to live in warm places. Yep. And the sail. Many researchers have said, well, why would you need a big sail for thermoregulation if you're already able to maintain a stable body temperature?
1: There's a reason mammals don't
0: bask in the sun, or at least most don't. Exactly. So for a long time, people have said, yeah, no, these were probably ectotherms. However, there is some evidence for at least some pellicosaurs growing quickly. Look, You know, you cut through the bone, you look at their histology, you can see high growth rates sometimes, higher vascularization, which is suggestive of a more active physiological system, right? Circulation, respiration, acting more in a mammalian way and a more warm-blooded way starting to lean that direction i've seen hypotheses of a mammal-like diaphragm oh in certain pelicosaurs right the way that mammals breathe Mm -hmm. it's not passive it's not a passive breathing by any means right we are pumping our my diaphragm muscles up and down to draw air in and out
1: if you're gonna have a high metabolism you need to fuel it with oxygen
0: yes and there's even been some suggested evidence of the sale not correlating with activity rate or body size or lifestyle, that the sale might not actually be linked to your physiology, which would mean that it is not a thermoregulation thing. That maybe it was for display or something else.
1: Which once again goes back to it's kinda weird if the active hunting predator and the grazing predator herbivore are both using similar shaped sized and functioning sails they're both using it for thermal regulation it seems like the more active one would need a different a noticeably different sail yes
0: so maybe the pellicosaurs were not quite as cold-blooded as you might think it's possible that the earliest hints of endothermy were already showing up back in the early permian the earliest synapsids which is a cool thought mm-hmm. to, to to see.
1: And that's something that uh things always treat ecto and endothermy, cold-blooded and warm-blooded as you either are or you aren't one or the other. But even in modern animals there's a there's a spectrum of different levels of these features. So you can you absolutely. can absolutely ha- you can have an animal that is kind of warmish-blooded, like the great white shark does not Maintain its metabolism the way we do to keep a warmer body temperature, but its blood flow does. So mm-hmm. as long as it's swimming, it is warmer than the water around it. Yeah. You know? Yes. So you get cool stuff like that, where it's an animal that's better at utilizing heat, but may not be producing it through its metabolism. And that's a warm. It. it if you took its temperature, it would come out like it was warm blooded.
0: Yeah, and so it is instead of being endothermic and homeothermic and high metabolism it's partially endothermic but poikilothermic and low metabolism (laughs) because there's multiple portions of that's a different episode oh yeah but that that
1: (laughs) means that when these traits show up they can show up in steps and stages and still be just as functional
0: absolutely now all these early pelicosaurs are also living alongside some of the earliest reptiles some of those fun large-bodied amphibians that that are are super cool at that time. But as we move into the middle Permian, one particular group of pelicosaurs differentiates themselves from the rest. In fact, they differentiate themselves so much that they don't get included in pelicosaurs. (laughs) This is where the word pelicosaur ends, and we start talking about therapsids.
1: Yeah.
0: Somewhere, either within the Svanacodots, Dimetrodon and, and friends, or very closely related to them, you see this group called the Therapsids evolve. The earliest therapsid, what you'll see often listed as the earliest therapsid, is an early Permian animal called Tetraceratops insignis. It's about 275 million years old. It's known from a single skull that's just a few inches long, boop, from Texas, with six horns. Dramatic pause. Yes, it's called Tetraceratops, but it has six horns. Moving on. Huh. <laughs> it's a small, it was probably a small probably, you know, very likely an insectivore or something like that, very much like how the most of those pelicosaur groups started. But as we get into the middle Permian, the therapsids start to differentiate and take off. And they come along with some interesting new features. So in a moment, I'll go through a number of the fun groups of therapsids because there's some good ones, at least one of which that was specifically requested by one of our requesters. <laughs> As we get into the therapsids, we start to see the legs are held more under the body. So less of the sprawling sort of lizard-like thing and more able to hold the legs more vertically. So think maybe not dog, but crocodile.
1: Yeah, where it, it's a, a high walk, but a not high that, walk. That perfect it not yet probably able to gallop. Right.
0: They also have, this is interesting, more symmetrical feet. Oh. Which is something you see in animals that are standing with their legs underneath them.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it, your legs aren't as out to the side, you don't you need them to be more centralized.
0: Yep. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. So we're starting to see more of what's called the parasagittal stance, where you're holding your legs underneath your body, which is something you see in mammals and dinosaurs, actually. Mm. It evolved it independently. We also see in the therapsids... At least the hints of three types of teeth. What if they were mammals we would call incisors, canines, and molars? Teeth with different jobs.
1: We're getting there.
0: What's really cool about this is that in modern mammals, particularly in placentals, the numbers of the teeth are very specific, right? Placental mammals never have more than three incisors in a quadrant or one canine in a quadrant of the mouth. The therapsids were not th- so limited. There's a lot of therapsids that have groups of canines.
1: <laughs> how, how many teeth do you want? How many teeth
0: can you get? <laughs> just keep keep adding those teeth. Yeah. Keep just them coming. All, just like three or four canines in a row. That's
1: fantastic.
0: Now, they are living aside the same amphibians. Uh, this is also the time we start seeing big reptiles, like the pereosaurs. And so that is what is competing with groups of therapsids, such as the dinocephalians. Therapsids have cool names. Yes, they do. Dinocephalians means terrible heads. And so accurate. So dinocephalians are actually very diverse. There are herbivores, there are carnivores, some were very small, some were quite large. There is a large carnivore called Titanophonius, (laughs) which is big head- Big teeth, 10 feet or so long, very similar to Dimetrodon, in fact. Uh, It doesn't have the sail, but as the Sphenacodontian carnivores sort of dwindled out of the early Permian, these are the animals that took over that niche. These are the new dominant carnivores, and they have a very similar body shape. There's also big herbivores like Moscops. Moscops is great, because Moscops is another one of these big herbivores that's like 10 feet long, has a giant body and just a silly little head, <laughs> boop, sticking off the front of it. They've been suggested to have possibly been hippo-like, maybe even semi-aquatic, oh, which is kind of cool.
1: That's that'd be interesting.
0: But of all the thi- the diversity of the dinosophalians, the reason they get their name is because they have these thick, knob-covered heads, just just bulby
1: and and like it's just weird.
0: Deal you know, with these little horns and knobs and stuff on them. And like flares. A lot like, yeah, a lot like pachycephalosaurs, actually. The head-butting dinosaurs with True. thick domes and knobs all around them. And it's been suggested that these were doing a similar thing, that these might have been head-butting or, or vying and wrestling with these knobbly heads of theirs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
0: But the dinocephalians are pretty restricted to the middle Permian. And... and As you get toward the later Permian, they dwindle. And as you're dwindling your dominant carnivores, uh, every niche invites a new entry. So a new group of therapsids came in to take over from the Dinocephalians. These, if you've heard of anything other than Dimetrodon, you've probably heard of the Gorgonopsids. Yes! Gorgonopsids were the major carnivores of the late Permian after the dinosophalian carnivores had dwindled they are ex- p- particularly well known in africa these are active predators these are often reconstructed looking very dog or cat like yeah in sort of the way they hold themselves the way that their bodies are shaped the largest of them include gorgonops and enostrancevia and things like that which were as, some of them could be bear sized significant like grizzly bear size yeah They have these long skulls with some of the first proper saber teeth, up to a few inches long, sticking out of the mouth, among all the other smaller sharp teeth, saber canines coming down from the top jaws.
1: Gorgonopses did it first.
0: They sure did. And they're weird to look at because they do look very sort of saber-tooth cat-y, except they have kind of sprawling limbs, and they still have long tails.
1: It, it, it very much is if you, like the cartoons, there's almost all, like all 90s cartoons had some episode where a mad scientist had the devolution rays and stuff. And it made everything mm-hmm. a reptile version of whatever it was they pointed it at. Th- this does yes. kind of have that feeling of if you pointed that ray at a saber-toothed cat, this is a very kind of more reptile-esque, even though not reptile, but it's got those features with that active cat-like predator design
0: yeah it's cool it certainly is gorgonopsids by the way are also if you've if you remember walking with prehistoric beasts yes. heavily featured gorgonopsids and if you've seen i think it was the first episode of primeval
1: pretty sure it was the first episode
0: it had a scutosaurus which is a big reptilian pereosaur big reptilian herbivore and a gorgonopsid was the Quote, monster yeah, of that guy. episode, which was pretty cool. It was like jumping on mm-hmm, cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you have these big carnivore therapsids running around, you need herbivores. And the middle Permian into the later Permian uh, therapsids gave rise to one of the most successful groups of herbivores in Earth history. These were the Dicynodonts. Yeah. Dicynodonts were these really cool therapsid animals. Uh, they show up in the mid-Permian. Dominant herbivores in the late Permian. They are very widespread. They come in a variety of sizes. Mouse-sized dicynodonts all the way up to cow-sized dicynodonts. They had beaks on the fronts of their mouths. Another thing that has shown up over and over again in herbivores. Turtles, ceratopsians. It's good for cutting up plants. Uh, mostly toothless right they were mostly using those beaks instead of front teeth to grab stuff but they get their name in part from having tusks little tusks Uh, these little tusks sticking out of their their mouth little effectively canines Mm -hmm. still sticking out of their mouth so we're still we're seeing more of that teeth being adapted for different purposes which is a very synapsic yeah. thing to do.
1: also made an appearance in Primeval. They actually became reoccurring characters.
0: Yes, in fact, one of these, I think it was the one in Primeval, was mm-hmm. Diictodon. I think that's who it was, which were these little, like, weasel-sized mm-hmm. yes. burrowers. These were burrowing they, they
1: show up in it, and they become a problem because they are burrowing through the drywall of the building they show up in. <laughs> yes, yes, yep. yes,
0: that's right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most famous dicynodonts, which we mentioned in episode forty-five, was Lystrosaurus. This is one of the very famous uh, uh, disaster taxa mm-hmm. that, after the end Permian extinction, became widespread in all this open eco space. And indeed, one group of the dicynodonts not only survived into the Triassic, but flourished through the Triassic. This is a group of animals that was still dominating herbivorous ecosystem you know, that eco-space into the Triassic when you started to get reptiles finally catching up and 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 rising up to take over more dominant ecological roles. Yeah, they
1: they really held on for a while.
0: Uh, there is a, a genus called Placerius, which was the size of a cow in the late Triassic. Awesome. Which is, you know, if these are starting in the middle Permian two hundred and sixty or so million years ago. That's a run of over 50 million years that these animals managed to hold on to dominant herbivorous clade niches.
1: And especially with, with the archosaurs stepping in to take in a lot of the the dominant roles, having a, a big dominant herbivore from, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to say like previous group, but from the, the dominant group of the previous period, they'd kind of be like if we had dog-sized monotremes running around a day like yes that's that's (laughs) significant they are very successful
0: now there's one more group that i want to mention from the therapsids there's a lot of these by the way i'm not mentioning all of them we're hitting on the major groups these were super diverse there is a group called the therocephalians yeah which means beast heads because synapsids get really cool (laughs) names therocephalians were another group of carnivores big skulls powerful jaw muscles uh showed up again Mid-Permian, made it through into the, tri- the Triassic. The Therocephalians are also interesting for a few other reasons. First, here we, s- we are seeing some more hints of mammal-like physiology, mammal-like traits by Therocephalians. There's potential evidence of this earlier on in some of those other groups, but certainly within the Therocephalians, there's evidence for the secondary mm-hmm. palate. The hard roof of the mouth that separates the what's called the I think it's the buccal cavity, yep. the mouth cavity from the nasal cavity. There's also possible evidence of respiratory turbinates. So if you ever get the chance to look inside the the snout of a of a skeleton of a mammal, in the nose we have all these sort of it looks like rolled up paper, yeah, like just
1: very thin
0: bones. And those are nasal turbinates. And what they basically do is they I- increase surface area for, um, in some cases, smelling yep. olfactory tissue. And that seems to have been present as far back as the early synapsids, the pelicosaurs, But also in mammals for respiratory purposes. That you are now, you have increased your respiratory absorptive surface. Which is something that is closely linked to our high metabolism, high respiratory lifestyle. This, it seems to potentially have arisen by these Therocephalians, these later derived therapsids. There are also Therocephalians that have these interesting pits in the bones of their snout that are potentially have been interpreted as possibly the roots for. Vibrissae, whiskers whiskers maybe. maybe it has also yeah. been pointed out that similar structures are found in animals other in like lizards yeah so maybe not could be could be whiskers might not be whiskers along those lines there is a late permian coprolite a poo fossil poo episode 30 that has been found to contain what appears to be hair Nice. Which seems to suggest that the late Permian therapsids, perhaps within the Therocephalian group, had evolved hair.
1: That at least some of them were fuzzy.
0: Yes, which is super cool. And another thing that is often linked to warm bloodedness. Yeah. To homeothermy, right? Maintaining uh, your body temperature in mammals. It's why wearing a jacket works for us, but wouldn't it work for a lizard? Yes, exactly. Your pet snake is not happy under a blanket. Well, it might be happy because it's dark and secluded, but it's not keeping it warm. Mm -mm. So by the time we're transitioning into the Triassic, we are seeing more of these mammalian traits. And indeed, the Therocephalians are a very close relative of a particular group called the Cynodonts.
1: Important group.
0: And the Cynodonts are going to take us into the final section of our trip through the Synapsid family tree. Cynodonts show up in the late Permian. They continue through the Triassic. Indeed, they're still around today. (laughs) Cynodonts, even the early Cynodonts, look like mammals. Yes. So whereas... You know, those early Pelicosaurs, we would have said, oh, you would have looked at it and said, that looks kind of like a weird lizard. Early Cynodonts, you would have looked at and said, that looks like a weird mouse or a weird ferret. Now your basis of comparison would certainly be mammal. They have differentiated teeth, right? Definitely at this point, we've got lots of teeth differentiation. They definitely, uh, Cynodonts evolve a secondary palate. They definitely end up with the respiratory turbinates. There's evidence for the diaphragm having shown up. There are a number of cynodonts that have that possible whisker attachment area. Uh, oftentimes, you'll see artist reconstructions of cynodonts covered in fur. Yeah, uh, These appear to be very much uh, uh, what you expect to see from the step before proper mammals. Yeah, And cynodonts were also super successful. Like, once again, another branch that they had... Lots of carnivores, some of which uh, were the size of, you know, like a fox. Something like Procynosuchus, which was late Permian. Thrinaxodon, which is a very famous uh, uh, early proto-mammal from the early Triassic. Cynognathus in the middle Triassic was up to four feet long. So now we're looking at, you know, bigger dog, right? Maybe medium-sized dog-sized animals. You also have herbivorous cynodonts, many of which had rows of cheek teeth for grinding up plants. Cool. Now we're looking like mammals, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Mesetognathus from the mid Triassic of Brazil, uh, and Exyaridodon, which was up to six feet long. These were big ish, grindy toothed, not quite mammalian herbivores. <laughs> And one of my favorite things that I, I you start noticing at this point, uh, and it's sort of been a running trend up till now, a lot of these animals are named and identified by their jaws and teeth, which is such a mammal thing.
1: Yep, that's, <laughs> that, that is a very mammal habit to do.
0: <laughs> yes. And in case we haven't sort of gotten this idea across yet, if you're a paleontologist studying mammals, you study teeth. Yes. Teeth in mammals are so differentiated and so unique to, to different species that they're really good for identification, for ecology. We have very specialized dentitions.
1: And yeah, you I mean, you, you can denote individual species quite easily with certain mammals. Oh, yeah. And it's completely different than when you're studying
0: things like reptiles. Oh, yeah. At least three of the species at the Gray Fossil Site were named off of teeth. Yeah. And that's common
1: practice. That's what we studied when we were taking our paleomammal courses.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) In the late Triassic, one group of cynodonts, uh, a very famous group, the morganucodonts. You may have heard of morganucodon, the animal that gives the name to this group. These are small nocturnal insectivores, also a very mammalian thing to be, small and nocturnal. Morganucodon is famous as a transition fossil. Now, Everything we've been talking about up till this point is effectively a transition fossil. But the reason Morganucodon stood out uh, when it was first discovered is that it has, yet again, a number of features. We've moved moving on from the early Cynodonts to the late Triassic Cynodonts. Morganucodon has incisors, canines, premolars, and molars. Four
1: important categories of teeth, we still have today.
0: Yelp. Yep. Morganucodon has evidence for a certain gland near the eye called the hardyrian glands, which is a gland that today secretes fluids that are helpful in grooming and maintaining fur That's cool. in mammals. So Morganucodon probably had fur. Yeah, and was grooming itself. That's cool. Yep. Morganucodon has two jaw joints like it's Early amniotic, you know, Pelicosaur therapsid ancestors, it has the quadrate and articular still joining together at the base of the jaw. They also, those two bones are forming part of its inner ear structure, and they have become so reduced that the dentary, which is most of the lower jaw in Morganucodon, all of the lower jaw in mammals, is big enough that it articulates with the squamosal in the top. Of the skull, which is the joint connection that mammals have. That's cool. Morganucodon has both jaw joints, the early version and the later version, as one is taking over for the other.
1: That's that's cool to get to see that you're seeing part of the process of how it transitioned. Transitional species, how it transitioned from one joint to the other is it literally just one started to take more and more of the job away from the other one, whilst both were still present, which is cool.
0: It is. Morganucodon also shows evidence of deciduous teeth. Which <gasps> baby is to teeth? Say, yeah, baby teeth. Baby, uh, baby teeth? teeth? And replace... Now, that is as opposed to what is probably the ancestral version, which is just continuous tooth replacement. Which is lots of teeth. Which is what you can do when your teeth are unspecialized, and they're simple to make, and you could just crank them out. If,
1: if you're not using very specialized tools, you can mass produce them more easily.
0: Exactly. I've also seen it suggested that because there's evidence that Morganucodon grew rapidly as a youngster and didn't develop teeth right away oh. in, in babies, which might be evidence that it was uh, feeding its babies milk.
1: It was suckling.
0: So that's kind of cool.
1: Oh, this is awesome.
0: So where the late Triassic, are our Cynodonts have given rise to... I mean, now we're on the verge of mammals. Yeah. And indeed, by the early Jurassic period, just after 200 million years ago, just around that time, we see true mammals. The first proper true mammals in the fossil record. Uh, there are some animals like Adelobacillus and Hadrocodium, which are either very early mammals or very close to that, <laughs> the, 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 the origin of the clade. By this time, we know, because of what we have in modern mammals, that these first tree mammals would have had the fully developed mammalian inner ear. They would definitely have been feeding their young milk, uh, lactating in some way or the other, would have had proper mammalian endothermy, right? You're warm-blooded in the way that mammals are. It was also at this time that uh, the, the Triassic-Jurassic extinction event episode 15, had cleared the way for the rise of dinosaurs. Yes. So the vying between the synapsids and the archosaurs that happened throughout the Triassic, a victor was nominated. And as the Triassic came to a close, pretty much just about every group that was left over of the synapsids died out. Yeah. Leaving behind just a handful of pretty much cynodonts, which are the mammals and the mammaliforms, mammals and very near mammals that survived throughout the Mesozoic. Traditionally, we have considered these to be, you know, these. it was thought that these were all very small, very mouse-like, crawling in the leaf litter, digging in the dirt, you know, eating the scraps they could. But over the last several years, we've actually come to learn that Mesozoic mammals and near mammals were actually really diverse.
1: Yeah, they weren't doing too bad.
0: They weren't, you know, dominant carnivores and herbivores, but you had things like the dokodots, which lived in the Jurassic, had very complex cheek teeth. Uh, This includes the famous Castorocata, which was very beaver-like, thought to have been semi-aquatic. Some of this group were potentially diggers. Some might have been arboreal, living in trees you have the Harameidins, which were gliders which is so cool there was a whole bunch of gliding mammaliforms th- all throughout pretty much most of the uh, the the mesozoic era you have the very famous multituberculates these are very rodent like these are true mammals very rodent like but not rodents yes they have these famous ridiculous Cheek teeth with just like each bump on a tooth is called a cusp, right? When you look at like a taper tooth, you mm-hmm. have these cusps on the teeth. Multi just had cusps on cusps on cusps. <laughs> just we, this these ridiculous teeth. We heard you like cusps. We heard you liked cusps. They were actually super common in the late Cretaceous. Like these were the mice of their time. Mm-hmm. They survived to the Eocene. They were still around into the age of mammals. And, of course, during the Cenozoic, uh, through the Jurassic into the Cretaceous, we see the rise of three very familiar groups of mammals, the monotremes, the marsupials, and the placentals. These are the three groups that make up the the full diversity of mammals that we have today. These are the three groups that, after the KPG mass extinction, episode 5, would basically take over the world. Yeah. After a brief hiatus, Synapsids dominated terrestrial ecosystems once again. Only this time they also took to dominating the oceans. Yeah, playing the long game. And the sky. (laughs) 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 And the age of mammals took hold uh, starting in uh, after the end Cretaceous extinction. But that, of course, is a story for another time. From the beginning, from those early, early Pelicosaur ancestors, through the development of more and more familiar traits to the mammals that run the world today, that's the breeze-by tour of synapsid history.
1: Yeah. It, uh, our history going back farther than most people realize it does.
0: Indeed. Yeah. I mean, our roots were planted in those ridiculous forests of the Carboniferous. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it, I like this one because very much like looking at whale ancestors going from terrestrial to aquatic it's it's very obvious as traits build up you know you can see them becoming more whale-like as time goes on you can see a very similar thing in synapsids where they're, they're very reptile-y and then they're weird reptile-y and then they're they're a, almost like a 50-50 of traits it's it's things we don't see today because now it's reptiles and mammals and then yes. more and more and more recognizable you know familiar i should say yes and that's it's a cool history to look through
0: it certainly is now before we wrap up the episode today as listeners might know uh, sometimes we get patron questions indeed today we have one to answer right before we wrap it up today our patron question is very fitting as we've wrapped up our october series a speculative evolution question. Oh boy! This comes from Samuel, who asked basically what What Samuel's asking is, what if humans had precocial babies? Yes. Precociality describes, you know, when you ha- in in his question he says, what would it be like if we had babies like lizards, just popped out, ready to go?
1: Yeah, just fully functioning, ready to potentially survive on our own.
0: Yes. So, will how do you think precociality? would affect humanity.
1: It it has a lot of effects. Uh, There definitely are chances that we could still be very human-like because you do get, like, crocodilians have pretty significant parental care. They're not feeding the young, or at least there's very little evidence that that does happen with most of them. But the big thing that really changes it is that we would no longer have to be learning or at least learning as much from our elders, and our yes. peers. And that that's the big thing that's different between most mammals and most reptiles is that even if a baby alligator was left on its own with no protection for the mom, it would be more vulnerable, but it would not have trouble feeding itself. It would not have trouble right. learn knowing where to hide and knowing where to go and what to do. It right. comes it out had how to be an alligator. Yeah. It comes out pre, all, all programs pre-downloaded. It is good. Yes. Pre-installed. It is good to go.
0: It knows Kung Fu. Yes.
1: Mammals have to learn almost all of those things. Depending on the mammal depends on how much, you know, some mm-hmm. like your, your artiodactyls come out and are walking within a few minutes. But then things like us are basically mammal larvae. We're oh, yeah squishy and pink and our bones <laughs> aren't fully formed and our... Eyes aren't working completely yet. And like, puppies don't even open their eyes for the first portion of their life. Like, yeah. Mammal babies are pretty, pretty useless other than to start <laughs> growing and eating and very quickly learning. Like, we're supercomputers in how quickly we're downloading information as babies. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that in order for humans to be precocial, we'd have to develop. You know, one of the reasons that we give birth so early in our development is that, you know, a pregnancy is long enough. Like, a yes. human pregnancy is a long pregnancy for compared to most mammals because there's so much development to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd have to either have a longer pregnancy or develop very differently to be ready to go right off the bat, and that would probably involve sacrificing things like brain development. Yeah, If you want to develop your legs to be able to carry <laughs> yes. your body, you yes. need to spend less time growing that ridiculous head well, it's it's
1: uh, one of the reasons that marsupials are so different from other mammals and oftentimes have crazy back legs but not crazy front legs because their legs develop their front arms develop when they're still fetuses to crawl into the pouch yes and latch
0: on to the uh, to the nipples
1: so you have to cook those first which means you don't have all that extra time in the womb to make them crazy awesome mole arms and things as often. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The thing that comes to mind for me is I wonder if if we were born ready to go, but still were intelligent species, I wonder if we would function more like cephalopods, like an octopus hmm. where... Because octopus and cephalopods, or many of them, are extremely intelligent. We talked about this when we talked about cephalopods.
0: Episode 16.
1: And they're different because they, unlike mammals and unlike intelligent birds... Uh, like crows are not learning from their peers and their parents because the parents die at mating Mm -hmm. and birth. So they are incredible problem solvers, but they're not big at the building up communal knowledge. You can put an octopus in a situation and it will trial and error until it figures out the solution very, very quickly, often much more quickly than other smart mammals because that's how their brain they they are learning by themselves on the go and they're antisocial so they're not even learning from one another you know peer level they're learning just on their own i wonder if humans would be very much like that to where we are very good problem solvers and we we if we keep some of the social aspects you know which is not impossible you you could absolutely could have social egg layers there's no reason you can't but i wonder if we would just be very Quick learners with less of that communal memory as often or something.
0: Yeah, the the last thing that I would say on that is that I I think we would we might lose a lot of that sociality. Potentially. Because I, I feel like such a big part of human culture and a lot of mammals really, mm-hmm. like the, a big part of the reason you stick together is to take care of the young and yes. to write your tribe or your pride or your herd really does revolve around raising the family and so in humans i do wonder if we would have gotten to a societal level where we are now if we didn't have that family tie keeping us together if you can
1: move out at two or three or four or five then what, why why would we stay home as often you know, yeah. Why would we stay with... Because like even with alligators and crocodiles who are some of the best parental caregivers within the reptile world, it's still only at max a couple of years. Yeah. And they live as long as we do, so that's not due to a faster lifespan. They live the same amount of time as us, but they're born ready to go. So once they get a couple feet long, uh, okay, I got more babies to make. Yes.
0: Well, and then you start, and now this is a totally other <laughs> conversation, and we'll wrap it up here because this is... Yeah, yeah, in you, the episode. You, you asked a speculative question. <laughs> we mentioned this in the last episode, I think in one of our news pieces. One of the reasons gators go away from their parents is cuz if you're precocial, you start competing with your parents. Yes, you do. So I wonder if a young humans would have to move away, especially if we don't have a society, you know, like we do today. You got to leave cuz you're going to start taking the food or the resources or the jobs I was about like, to say, toddlers <laughs> will start stealing stealing the jobs yeah right like if you're precocial and ready to go there's not going to be child labor <laughs> laws
1: <laughs> one it, it would be very interesting because uh an octopus is is one of the few precocial intelligent animals
0: like almost all other right, right. highly
1: intelligent animals have a, a long a long childhood or you know a noticeable one
0: Right. You had to grow that brain. Yeah.
1: So it would be interesting to see what research there is on octopus memory. Like, how long is it? How complicated is that? How detailed? Like, they only live for a very short amount of time, which would be is the biggest difference. And so I wonder if a long lived animal like us, but, you know, being born ready to go, if we would have the same need for a long memory because now you don't need to l- remember the lessons necessarily you learned at 5 because you already have those. Right, right. Be interesting.
0: Hey, thanks Samuel. That was a cool question. That was fun. <laughs> and <laughs> also always up for some speculative evolution.
1: Creepy to think of babies literally just being ready to run around.
0: Like that's that's I'm picturing in my this whole time I've been picturing the um the dino human. Yes, yeah. That yeah. troodon yeah. thing. Yeah. Because that we talked about in when did we talk about? Oh, that was episode thirty nine. That yep. was the speculative evolution episode.
1: That's anyway. Really quick side note for everyone: If we were born precocious, that also probably means we'd be different proportion, and we'd be more like just a tiny adult. Yes, not not these chubby big baby, big headed baby. We'd be mm-hmm. a little bit different. We'd probably probably have a slightly bigger head and bigger eyes because that's normal. But we'd basically look like a little person. Walk- so you'd have like two foot tall just, people. Just
0: crawling out of the womb just walking around and like just pulling yourself out the doctor like the 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 what during birth you just hold your hand out and the little baby's hand would come out and grab yours <laughs> yes and you just thank help, you help him yes, out thank yeah, you. Like, Oh yeah thank you very much <laughs> it was i was having <laughs> some trouble there <laughs> <laughs> no i don't like it anymore
1: you'd have <laughs> to have so- you would have to have clothing ranges from
0: they Every. would have to be able to communicate too. Yeah,
1: would our language be different? Would we have as complex language? Would we be able to have that pre-downloaded?
0: <laughs> it's just come out like, oh, well, mother, father.
1: Because if you're born ready to go, typically those animals ha- don't have as much language as we do. It's, it's yeah. more. Uh, uh. <laughs> That's yeah, we'd come
0: out. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, we'd have we'd have
1: born. we'd have fifty words instead of millions. Grok get
0: job. Yeah. <laughs> rock take aptitude test. Yes, yes. Ah, listeners, thank you for putting up with us. This has been this was a fun episode. So this is uh, one of those episodes where every section of this episode is its own episode topic. So, as always, if you want to hear more about any of the things we've covered here, let us know. We <laughs> take your requests in all the normal places. Listen to the outro message for the ways to reach us. Look forward to that precocial human episode. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you to our patrons for supporting us, like Samuel. Thank you to our requesters who requested the topic of the episode. It was awesome. Thank you to you for listening. We release new episodes every fortnight. So stay tuned later in this month for another episode. Keep your eye out for that QA submission form that we'll be putting up. We're approaching the end of the year. Yeah, it's coming up. It's pretty exciting. We will see you all next time. On Common Descent. On Common Descent. Find out next time. <laughs> on the Common Descent podcast. After after like three years of Common Descent, we'll release Common Descent Z.
1: Yeah, as, as like it is a 90s kid thing. Like, not to be one of those people that's like you're real 90 kids if you but every time I hear next time on, my brain immediately goes, Dragon Ball Z.
0: Yeah. <laughs> on Dragon we'll release Common Descent Z. It'll be the, it'll be very much like the regular Common Descent except there'll be a lot more filler
1: <laughs> and yelling
0: and yelling. There's going to be yelling all the time. <laughs> Hello. Well,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks for listening to the common descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on patreon the song you're hearing is called on the origin of species by protodome which we found at ocremix.org thanks again for listening we hope you'll join us next time